This is the Stop Time Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Hopkins, and I'm here to engage you in thought-provoking motivational conversations around practicing the art of living in the moment. I'm a certified life coach, and I'm excited to dig deep and offer insights into embracing who we are and where we are at. So as a dancer, today's conversation holds a very special place in my heart. I would be lying if I didn't say I was over the moon excited to be speaking with today's guest. She is the biographer and wife of one of the most iconic and beloved dance icons of our times. When Patricia Ward met Jean Kelly in 1985, she admits that she had no idea who he was. She had a gig working on a documentary about the Smithsonian, and he was the host. Five years later, she married the iconic dance legend who became the love of her life. They were together until he passed away in 1996. Thanks to her, and lucky for us, she has dedicated her life to preserving his legacy. Patricia, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, really. I mean it. Oh, I'm delighted. This is just great. And especially given your, your dance background, that makes it a, adds a new, nice dimension to everything. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's such a thrill. It really is. Um, and first of all, I really do want to take a moment, and it's safe to say I speak for the worldwide dance community, really, um, when I say that I am grateful for you and for the work you do. It's one thing to preserve a national treasure and something quite different to share it so wholeheartedly as you have done with us. Thank you. It was really, I, I feel like it, I use the word privilege to describe it because I really feel it was a great privilege that Gene entrusted me with his story and then also gave me the guidance. I mean, basically said exactly what he wanted, how he wanted to be represented in the world as a, as a creator, more than as a performer, more as the guy behind the camera, uh, changing the look of dance and the look particularly the look of dance on film, and then also changing the costume. How does the American male dancer look? And so Gene is, as you can imagine, was very specific about his wishes. And, uh, and he kind of gave me those marching orders. And I, so I feel it's an honor to be able to represent that. And I, and I always say, too, that you know, if he were not a really decent human being, if he were not a, a man of such great integrity and humility, I, I wouldn't do it. I didn't really believe in this. And and I do. And it's it's such a joy. You get up in the morning and you're able to share this extraordinary career. Oh, yeah. And you have done that again, as I said, completely selfless in your in your um, in your work. It's just um, it's a, it's very rare. I mean, you must know that. It, well, you know, it's funny because people, some people will say how strange it is, um, because I guess it is rare. Most people, uh, I think in some ways I kind of laugh and say that Gene was very smart to marry a woman who was so much younger than he was, because I'm particularly an, a biographer, archivist, writer, because he then had kind of the built-in package so that uh, he entrusted me with his archives, with the story. And so... He got somebody who was really dedicated to this craft. Most spouses don't interview their husbands every day for 10 years. And fortunately, I did. That was my first priority was as the, the memoirist, as the person to get the story. Had that not been it, I wouldn't have had that tape recorder going all the time. I wouldn't have been writing all those notes. And you'd have a vague memory, I think, of how things transpired. But the difference here is that I have his exact words and his gestures and what he's wearing, what he's eating, everything. And so it is an unusual thing. And I think I think people look at it as kind of odd that this woman would devote this amount of time to her husband, the decades. And yet, if you look at somebody who's, say, writing the Lyndon Johnson biographies and has devoted 40 years to that, they don't see anything odd about that. So I don't worry about that. I just do what I do because I just, I believe in it. I love it. And I love the ability to share it and see the responses, the three-year-olds who are getting tuned into Jane all around the world and the 103-year-olds who are re visiting him and getting a better understanding of 
with him, really seeing him not just as this one-dimensional figure up on a screen, but as a multi-dimensional figure who had feelings, emotions, responses, this intellectual prowess. And it's interesting because there's, there is such a reciprocal thing going on. And I think without that, it would seem very kind of like a vacuum. If I were just sort of sending this stuff out and there was no response, then, then it, it would be different. But it is very much a give and take. It takes two of us. It, it's just not about me conveying Jean's story. It's the way people are responding and the way that they're responding with care and thoughtfulness. And it reminds me of my own shows, the one woman show and the, the show with the live symphony in that people have said, oh, why don't you record those for on DVD and we could all see it. And the thing is, I love the audience. I love listening to the audience. It's their extemporaneous performances. So mm-hmm. I can move and adjust and, and I can hear them breathing. I can hear them laughing. I can hear them crying. I can hear them commenting. And, and I think that makes for a, a much more organic, alive thing. And Jean talked about that, of preferring the stage to the movies, because he loved that sense of that interaction with the audience. And he, he knew that even if he had the, the women in the Wednesday matinee who, were, who thought he was this <laughs> terrible figure in Hal Joey, that they would just start to cringe and he could feel it across the lights, then he'd go into this song and dance and be able to turn them back and bring them back in. And and he said, with the movies, you don't have that. You, you just are in front of this camera. Yeah. And yeah. I definitely get that. I, I love the, I love the interaction with the people. It's, it's a real dichotomy and it makes so much sense in the context of the way Gene was considered a perfectionist in his film work, because even though it feels like you can control so many elements, actually, in live theater, as you just said, in live theater, if you are intuitive and if you are connected to the audience, you can also shift, as you said, the energy of the audience. You can receive it, feel it, adjust on the fly, which is, you know, not everybody can't do that, but clearly he could. That's why he felt he was a better performer on stage than mm-hmm. he was in front of the camera because yeah. he relied on that uh, interactive sensibility and he could he could play these rascals and yet get them everybody cut to come over so he understood the mechanics of the camera and that was what he was really working on all the time but to perform in front of it he he just never felt completely comfortable he always felt like he was kind of overreaching going for that fourth balcony to bring them in and he never felt uh, at ease i think in front of the camera as much as he felt on stage although there was that initial always that kind of, for him, a kind of jittery feeling before that curtain come up, came up and he sang his first note. Absolutely. Sounds like you probably would miss a little bit of that because your brain is thinking about all the other elements and especially for him in film where he was directing and you know writing and choreographing and training his, his leading ladies. I mean, that's the thing that blows my mind is that some of his most well-known um, leading ladies, he trained. Correct. I mean, I People say, well, he was a triple threat. And I kind of say, well, actually, I think he's, it's more like quadruple, quintuple, <laughs> sestuple, septuple, octuple. Mm-hmm. It, it's because it really was, he would just take off one hat and move to the next thing and, and overseeing the costumes, the music, the way that the technicolor was shot and everything. And yes, working with the leading ladies and the leading men and the leading mouse, you know, with Jerry the mouse and mm-hmm. the detail of all of that. But, but teaching somebody like Frank Sinatra to dance and he had two great assistants. He had Carol Haney behind the scenes. Amazing. Doing a lot of the teaching and his, uh, his second wife, Janie Coyne, was also an assistant working um, so, so, and Ernie Flat, the the dancer uh, choreographer, was teaching. For example, those three were really working with Debbie Reynolds uh, on Singing the Rain, and then Gene Dean was as well. But those they were in there in those rehearsal halls, day in and day out, working uh, with her. Yeah, remembering that that Debbie didn't dance 
Well, not like that. She certainly didn't no, dance no. like that. <laughs> no, certainly nothing like what she mm. was required to do. And if you notice, Jean always choreographed to the non-dancer or to the less accomplished dancer because he never wanted to... He, his whole thing was you make everybody look their best and that only elevates yourself. You don't out try to outshine everybody. That doesn't do any good. And so... It, he would choreograph the steps that she was able to to accomplish, and therefore she looks fantastic in this, and slightly different from the steps that Jean and Donald are often doing. But it's he's able to merge that, so it, you're not that's not a glaring kind of thing. But um, yeah, she really learned, and uh, he would go to the set, uh, and they it's recorded exactly when they arrive at the set, and whether they're going mm. to make or whether and he would rehearse and he and he would shoot and then he would go home at night and with his assistants carol haney Jeannie coyne stanley don donnan they would be up till all hours of the night then setting what would be coming the the shots for the following day and so it, it was this extraordinary cycle when these things were going i mean it was virtually 24 hours a day he would sleep very very short amount of time and yeah. and get up i mean it was a very rugged schedule uh, mm-hmm. to going do you know what stands out to me and i'd love to ask is uh, just as you're speaking about this it sounds like um gene was working towards the just cause you know the thing that's going to live beyond him the idea that a film once is made is in the can it's permanent and that he put all his energy into doing the very best he could in capturing the very best of everybody, um, especially when he was taking the lead, right? I mean, it's it's his ship, so that makes sense. Tell me a little bit about how he shared with you or didn't, how that, because I, I imagine as a young man, there was an arc of going from being the performer, climbing up the ladder, making money to live, and then slowly getting into fame, and then responsibility comes in there at some point, and then the greater good, right? Well, and, and never really wanting to be the, a performer, even when he first went to New York, he really wanted to be a choreographer. But he had to he had to start in little roles and work his way up to where he began to get the assignments to to craft his own uh, dance numbers and things. And so it was this real apprenticeship in New York, and then and then as you say, stardom, kind of overnight, massive stardom with pal joey that just he became this overnight sensation essentially even though he'd been working toward that for years but but i think to be up on billboards and to have people begin to recognize you and then uh to come out to hollywood and i think then just trying to find his way in hollywood because he Mm -hmm. never really intended to be out here he always intended to go back to the broadway stage Mm -hmm. He thought he'd come out just for a short amount of time. But I think once he began to see the opportunity, not only to hone his craft as a choreographer, but also to begin to choreograph the use of that camera. And and as you say, a, a real feeling of responsibility. I think that he took it so seriously. Uh, and I think it bothered him when uh, people did not in the sense of, Gene, as a child of the Depression, took money very seriously because he didn't have a lot of money. And so this notion that if you would waste money or waste time on a set or on a production, it it was anathema to him. And he felt a responsibility to bring these pictures in on time and on budget. And you referenced the in the can of what was interesting is that Gene shot his numbers in the can. So he knew he edited in the can. Instead of putting a whole batch of cameras up, which they do today, Gene shot generally with one camera. And he knew by connecting the dance movement with musical beats that there was no way to turn that footage over to an editor and have them do anything else with it other than to put the jigsaw puzzle pieces together. He was, as he said, editing in the can. So he knew the outcome of that number as he shot it. I'm curious if he ever said anything about how he navigated sound, like tap dancing specifically. 
it was all well the music was pre-recorded so they performed to on the big, big lily horns would uh, play the music and they performed to a playback and gene was there rec- on the stage sound stage recording the music instructing the musicians in how to play the trumpet solo in american paris and things like that and was very intimately involved in that and then all of the the sound things like tap dancing mm-hmm. taps were all put in after. So that was all dubbed after the movie was closed. And he hated it. He hated, he said, I hated tap dancing in the movies because it was so difficult to do that uh, post dubbing. And he would have to put on a headset and then watch himself on screen and match his steps. Yeah. And, and there was a, he said it was very dangerous, he felt, because they had a microphone that was dangling at his feet. And a lot of the movement that he's doing is quite extravagant. And he was worried about that wrapping around his ankle and breaking his ankle or something. But he would then dub the taps for the, like a Debbie Reynolds, someone who was not an experienced dancer as well as his own. Oh, wow. And he worked very closely with the sound engineer. There was a man by the name of Bill Serestino. And I had the great opportunity to, we had a lot of correspondence with, Uh, Bill Saraceno over the years. And then after Gene died, I reached out to him because various people were taking credit for dubbing Gene's taps. And I thought, well, okay, if that's true, he said he did it, but let me go to the source of the guy Mm. who recorded it. It was one of the bluest conversations I've ever had in my life. I have to say, I mean, it was, he was zinging these things across. He was so mad at people's distortion of the truth and he's since died but i do have that recording and and he said no absolutely gene was there dubbing his taps and they would experiment for example with singing the rain what's the sound of tap dancing in the rain Mm. and so gene brought his assistants in and everybody they experiment with different shoes different surfaces and ultimately, uh, Saraceno confirmed that it was just regular taps. Uh, but then he, Saraceno, added a kind of squish sound for the water to make that reality. Was, was there ever a time that he, because it was such a part of his work, and it sounds like he was always working. Was there a time where, where he was able just to enjoy dance for dance's sake? Only, no, no, mm. <laughs> only, only on the uh, social dancing ballroom dance floor, which, which he could do early on. Uh, but once Gene became so famous, he lost that as well. He still enjoyed it if he had an opportunity to do it and he wasn't being hounded. But generally, he and Fred Astaire both came up with this um, this thing that they'd pretend to have bad legs and they'd stand <laughs> back because... The minute they got up on the dance floor, then every husband was tapping them to say, could you dance with my wife? Even when Gene was in the Navy uh, and he would go to a cocktail party and here he is in uniform and and they're asking him to get up and perform. And so it's like asking that, inviting the plumber over to dinner and then saying, could you, by the way, could you go plumb my sink? I mean, we we ended up dancing at home, which was really wonderful and romantic and lovely. But that just was we could never do that in public. It just would have stopped the entire event. And he said it was you'll appreciate this, that um, he said women were it was very difficult to dance with women socially because they would all be so they'd be feeling that he was about to toss them over a sofa or something, that he was going to do something. So it was not a normal kind of thing. No. no. He said that <laughs> Billy Wilder's wife, Audrey, was one of the best. Uh, Edie Wasserman was a very good social mm. dancer. He said Nancy Reagan was an exquisite uh, social dancer. And he, he really was sad that young people don't have that opportunity, that feeling of putting your arms around the, your loved one and holding her close. And he loved movement and he loved all of that. He loved playing tennis. He loved volleyball. He loved sports. Um, but the dance was, was hard work for him and very hard work to, as he said, to make it appear so effortless so that mm. everyone looks at it and they think they can do it. Everybody looks at singing in the rain and they could take an umbrella and they go out in the street. And, and so, uh, but he said it was, it was very, very 
difficult. And he would much have preferred to have been just simply behind the camera, choreographing and directing. But what he created, most people could not do. So he had to be the one doing it and, and, and setting the shots and setting the lights and everything too. So when you were at home and, you know, you're cooking pasta or you're in the kitchen or whatever, did he ever just kind of just, you know, flop around, tap his feet? Nope. nope. Really? No, he would um, sit and have a vodka tonic and listen to <laughs> Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole and have a great time. I mean, he really loved, but no, that wasn't, not in the around the house. <laughs> That's so interesting to me. Wow. Huh. Huh. Thanks for sharing that. So how did your life change once you were married? You know, I mean, I'm sure Jean knew everyone in Hollywood, right? There must've been moments when you had to pinch yourself with some of the company you were keeping. It virtually changed overnight. And mm. you'd be amazed at how much uh, marriage changes things in Hollywood. I, pinching myself, it was funny because it was never my world. So it was never anything that I, I didn't dream of Hollywood as many people do. And I didn't dream of celebrities mm. and mm-hmm. I mean, frankly, when I was growing up on my walls, people always talk about how, oh, I had Jean on my wall. I had the pictures from Life magazine of Kent State and I had Vietnam. Mm. The entertainment world was not my world and certainly Mm. Hollywood. But interestingly, many of these people are not what what you see on the screen is not what they are in Mm. person. What you see is often not very interesting. They, Mm. They might be your dinner mate but it's not an interesting conversation mm-hmm. it's uh, they may be gorgeous up on the screen and very charming but not in person so the the great thing about gene was that he was incredibly charming on screen and incredibly handsome and charming in person and very bright i mean really bright but what was interesting when you get, when i got married and nobody's ever asked me this but but interestingly you get a name you suddenly have a name I did not have a name prior to that. The invitations would come as Gene Kelly plus one, Gene Kelly and guest. So it was very strange that suddenly you you have this other situation, but then you also begin to live your life in a Mm -hmm. fishbowl. We sort of lived it before we got married because everybody was speculating and talking and making up lies about it. But then once you get married, then everyone feels that they have, they're entitled to comment about it. And it was not easy. And I was never really fully prepared for, I was never prepared for Hollywood and the, the, the world of it and the, some of the cruelty of it. And, and uh, Jane weathered all that much better than I, and I, I, I was not, I never, I think now, you know, I think, gosh, at 62 years old, I would do things so differently than I was doing at 26 years old, but that wasn't the situation. I was 26 and tossed into this, this arena and a completely unfamiliar arena and, and even how to smile on, in, on camera and how to, how to curtsy, how to be introduced to uh, certain people, heads of state and things like that. And it, it was it was a very interesting education. One I, I'm very, I'm very glad I had, but it was also a very kind of a Pygmalion type of experience in many ways. And uh, one, I always kind of joke and say at one point I was like, you know, it's like my fair lady. It was like the rain in Spain. I was just, like, <laughs> uh, 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 and, and yet now I look back and I think, thank goodness I learned that or I, I did that. But but no, it's a, it's. Um, it's not an easy world to negotiate. And I don't think um, a young woman marrying a legend is, I think, uh, interestingly, very suspect for the woman, not for the man. They don't don't question the man. They question the woman's motives for that. And, uh, and I, a lot of people do come here to marry a celebrity for a particular reason and they kind of give the rest of us a bad rap, but um, you know, not knowing him and not knowing anything of the world, I certainly wasn't in that group, but it's okay. I mean, now I can look back. Now I look back at it and I think, oh, I, I could have handled that so much better. And I wish I had done, uh, I wish, wish I had one ounce of the con- 
self-confidence. The irony is the way I was prior to coming here is that I had an immense amount of confidence and sense of self, and I was constantly breaking barriers and challenging things. But then I got to Hollywood and I, I didn't do that then. So I had to kind of recoup that sense of myself after Jean died. Really, it took, it took quite a while to begin to kind of re, reignite the, the person I was. And, mm-hmm. and that's because I think that virtually, virtually you get lost in the sense um, people will come up to me and they'll say, Oh my gosh, I had dinner with your husband. It was so amazing. We were at Spago restaurant or, and I'll say, yes, I was there. There were four of us and virtually don't exist. You don't, ex- you do not exist. And, and I think I existed within the confines of our home in our, our bedroom where we watched the old movies of other people, not his, but read poetry together. Uh, as you said, cook dinner together, listen to music. Um, that was, I, that was our little, secluded gene called it the cruise ship and there there it was very different you go out in the world and it's a it's a whole different ball game and i mm. never had any i never was established in that world I, somebody said to me you were never part of it you were just in on a pass and i think that's on as brutal as that is i think that's true and now what's great is in the work that i do i, I just have this remarkable connection to the world with all the dance companies around the world, Matthew Bourne's company, the Scottish Ballet, when we're just about to remount the ballet Jean did in 1960 with Paris Opera, theater companies, uh, Abbey Theater, Royal Shakespeare Company, Druids, all these people come see Jean's archives. And so it's funny, I was able, fortunately, to create a kind of beautiful world for myself I had the beautiful world with him, but it was in this little nest. And then now I'm able to, with my own identity, uh, have these other associations. Yeah, 100%. And that's why I was really super curious to chat with you about you, you know, in the context of what you do, which obviously is connected to the larger legacy. Thank you. That was, that was really, I really appreciate you sharing, sharing that. And um, I, I told you the truth. Yeah. I, you think about it when you get asked questions, you think, mm, do I, do I go there? And, and, and then I think, why not? What's the, what's the harm in telling the truth? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can dodge it. And it all started. I spoke at a lot of schools, uh, a lot of high schools. I would make a pact with the kids. I would say, okay, look, within these four walls today, you can ask me any question you want. The pact was that I had to honestly answer whatever they asked. I was in one high school and the kids were in an auditorium. I was up on the stage and this boy in the sitting alone toward the front raised his hand and he said, Mrs. Kelly, you know, we really appreciate your coming here and we've learned so much about your husband and, and we really thank you for that. But what happened to your own identity? <laughs> Just mm. And then the boy said, oh, I'm sorry, I guess my question isn't very clear. And I, I turned to him and I said, oh, no, your question is very clear. And I said, it's something I grapple with every single day. And it was really from that point on that I began to think, okay, I need to, I need to get a grip on this and get, get that identity back. It really changed the trajectory of my writing and of my speaking and of my shows and things because I thought, that people, people, if you treat people and young people with that, with respect, then again, we get back to that notion of reciprocity, of mutual, mutual respect, uh, mutual regard. And you're, it's a, it then goes both ways and you learn from your audience. They learn from you. It goes, you're touched by them. You can cry with them, whatever. And but it, boy, what a process. And I'm still on it. I'm still working on it. I still learn every day of kind of some like, oh, God. And you think, when am I, when, do I, when does this uh, postgraduate school stuff stop? And then, <laughs> oh, your, your insights about your life are just so on point. What you're talking about, what you're speaking to, that anecdote 
about everything you said, I feel like you're saying to your younger self, you know, everything you didn't get when you went to Hollywood is exactly what you're saying to these kids is, you know, be honest, but all of, right. You're nodding your head. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me how that resonates. Exactly. And do not let anyone ever take that away from you. One of the things I talked about was and Gene it kind of came from Gene. He said that the great playwright, Noel Coward once said to him that the sound of booing and the sound of applause when you're on stage, it's essentially the same sound. Mm. And therefore, don't go too far when people are booing and don't go too far when people are applauding. You, you need to learn to hold that within yourself so that if, if people are booing, you still know that you presented a performance with integrity. Why they're booing is not your concern. And, and same with if they're applauding wildly, you just st stay and hold the core together with your own sense of your own self and your own performance and don't go swaying one way or the other too much by what other people are saying about you. Mm, 100%. I want to just, if it's okay with you, like jump back to what you said about you wish you would have done or you, that you, you would have done things differently. You know what you would have done differently. Can you share with me what you think that would look like? Well, I wish I'd had more, I wish I had more resilience in a way that I didn't, I would go out, we would go out to these engagements and, and people would just come up and say really horrible things and they would do horrible things. And, and, and you were, I, I say that I still have some bruises from it of kind of being poke checked out of the way. And, but I remember I went to a uh, dinner, small, very small dinner party at the Sinatra's house. Gene was uh, alive, but he was he was ill. And but Gene always said, if you get an invitation from the Sinatras, it's like a royal request. So you must go. So I went. But I remember that this one woman, a soon to be ex-wife of a very famous person, <laughs> came up to me and she said, excuse me, is your husband dead? And I said, oh, no, he's he's very much alive. He's, he's not dead, um, but he's very ill. And she said, oh, you look so bad. I thought maybe he had died. And, and then she said, I've been in Europe and I thought perhaps it had happened and I hadn't heard about it. And I thought, oh yeah, that, that news is not going to trend. <laughs> it isn't going to cut across the pond. And I mean, I don't know, honestly, what I would say to somebody like that. I don't know, you know, in one sense, I just wish I hadn't let that hit me that way. In I, I mean, I wish I'd maybe been able to say, "I'm sorry." Is that kind of an appropriate? Or, or what? It, what? What? Why are you asking me? Or something? But that isn't that isn't who I am. So I don't know. Um, but it, it was so prevalent that kind of thing. I would come home from these events and I'd be in tears and Gene would just say, F them, they don't get no medal. But I was like, yeah, but they don't do it to you. <laughs> you know, why do you give up so much energy to that? And then people would always say, oh, you need a thicker skin. And I thought, I don't want a thicker skin. I mean, I, I like my skin. I think my skin and the thickness of my skin or lack of thickness is what defines me. I think that's why I look at the world a certain way. I just try to, I try to deal with it all better now and try, but I, I still, I still let way too much time go to people who are really negative and, and just not, not worth the energy. My mother's better able to dispense with it. Her, her, her thing is it is what it is. And mm -hmm. I've never looked at the world as it is what it is. I've always looked at it as, no, it, it is what I envision it could be, you know, mm -hmm. and, but now I look at it and I think, you know, she has a point about some of this. She just doesn't take it to bed each night uh, though. And I do more. And I, I'm trying to listen to my 89 year old mother and, and, and say, okay, this situation is what it is. I can't really alter it. Just deal with it. Move on. Nobody likes to hear stuff like that, but knowing that that will always, it'll always exist, Patricia. No, and you're right. And no matter what field, I mean, it's more prevalent now because you're out there speaking about someone that everybody else has ownership over. I feel like in the aftermath of Jane's death, I was very vulnerable because I just, I just had this gaping hole in me. And I think everybody could see that, but I don't think they see that anymore. And so I haven't had that happen for right. I, every time I go out the door, I, I know that 
something can happen, but also something magical can happen. And mm. inevitably something magical happens when you go out and you open yourself up enough to receive that. I think if you just stand and hold your own composure and your own sense of yourself, you're not as subject to that kind of ridiculousness. I, I was kind of dabbling around and looking at, it was, I think in your blog, it was in that, um, I love the name of it too, the um, notes from a napkin. You said, one thing leads to the next and soon I am wrapped in Jean's words his collection of letters, photographs, and other memorabilia. I dive in. Hours pass. I pop out with a tender morsel, savored. Alas, it is a privilege to have such trouble. And I know you were referring to trouble as, as thinking, oh my God, there's so much, right? Like, But that was such a beautiful, beautiful passage. And like I've painted in my mind like this intimate scene of where, where archaeologist meets confidant, where I don't know if this is true, but in my mind, when you say that, I'm like, you know, I'm a visual person. So I'm like, Ooh, I'm trying to picture you in an attic somewhere with all this stuff. Tell me about that experience. Like when you're actually digging. I haven't revisited that. Thank you for reading that. I, I'm, I'm, as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, well, that's not that bad. Beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's sort of funny because the notes on a napkin has a source because, as you know, I recorded Gene with a tape recorder. But I would put that tape recorder out on the table and the minute he saw that he immediately started editing. I could hear it in his voice. And, and I said, no, 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 no. Don't talk to the tape recorder. Talk to me. Talk to me. And it would take sometimes minutes, sometimes hours for him to drop the sense of his editing for posterity. But over time, I mean, that was certainly in the early interviews, but over time, it, he, it became a much more fluid type of thing. And he became much more, as he trusted, it was interesting how as our, there, there are actually three strands moving. There's his life, as he's recalling it, it to me. There's my life as I'm living it, listening to him. And then there's our life together as it's moving along and the interactions there. And, and then, and Jean's actually, I guess there are four, there's Jean's actual life and then his recollection of it. And so as it moved along and his, as his trust grew for me and his understanding and, and our relationship grew into not only a physical intimacy, but a real emotional, intellectual, psychological intimacy. And by the end of that, then Gene was referring to it as a confessional, essentially, and he used that word. And so I think the guard that he had built up for so many years, he began to let down. And, and you could get to these little lower layers that were there that he had not revealed to anyone before. So I essentially have a story nobody has. Now, when you talk about the attic, I don't have an attic, but I do have what, what is surrounding me here in my uh, townhouse. It's uh, 85, five drawer, 36 inch filing cabinets that are all lined up like an archive. So you can only go through, you can go single file, you turn and you go. It's like a maze of mm. filing cabinets. And I don't have a sofa. You can't come over to my house and just hang out and sit and have a drink inside. There's no place to sit. It's all, it's all archival. And one day, I hope that will change. But right now, since that's, I'm the custodian of that and working on it and still going through boxes and unpacking boxes. And it isn't like you just want to kind of pop in and spend five minutes. You go in and you need to really invest time in it. But I'll open a box and I'll find a note. And, and this literally happened. I found the note that Jean left me on the day that we got married that I... I, I've forgotten about it. So here I have this note and I read it and it's hilarious because it's so Gene. And he says, this is it. <laughs> You're stuck. Love, love, love your new husband. And it's in his very cryptic handwriting and it's on this little note card. And I wept. I just started weeping. And it's the kind of weeping, this kind of, it just takes your breath away that it, it by the it, the next day your your temples hurt and your head hurts because it almost feels bruised you you've cried so hard and 
and you're li and literally you're on the floor. Literally, you're in kind of a ball on the floor because it all just comes back. It isn't just that note. It's just everything comes tumbling back and this cumulative sense of loss and grief and and just missing him, missing the fact that, yes, I have this priceless thing and it brings it all back and it's wonderful. And I'm so grateful I have his exact words, but God, I wish he were here. And, and I think that's the hardest thing is that I wish he were here with my 62 year old understanding of his life and of his, of the history of dance of the history of the mm. world versus my 26 year old understanding, which was virtually zero of American popular song, zero of dance, zero of, of his life. Uh, he was a blank slate. And now I have all of this and I, now I have so many questions and, and the absence is, huge you just want it to like ugh, like just have that back and you can't and so but then you get back up and then you have then that becomes a little kernel in that story and my desire is that this collection will ultimately go into the ether and become a virtual collection that can be accessed around the world in perpetuity so after i kick the bucket it will be available to everybody and but yeah, so you're absolutely, you know it, you know, you know that it's, people go, oh, that must be so great. You get to see all the stuff. And it's like, yeah, it is. But I ain't writing about Ernest Hemingway. I'm writing about the man that I loved and, and reconstructing our life together and the way that he recalled himself and revealed himself, not only to me, but to himself. So, and how we grew together. How did each of us grow in this decade together? Because we both did very much. To his credit, he didn't have to. He was fine. He was famous. He'll, he would go on forever. But to his credit, he, he, he grabbed this opportunity and he took advantage of it. I definitely grew. I mean, mm. yeah. what a gift that, that decade must have been. I mean, for him too. I mean, when you think about, as you know, when we go back to to his trajectory, how it happened so quickly for him, and although obviously he navigated it brilliantly, um, he too lost. Like you speak about what you lost, you know, given given the age gap, given you also being thrown into the world, but with a totally different thing. So you both shared that you're both thrown into a world and then expected to be a certain way. That was probably so important for him, Patricia, to actually like be be human again for the last 10 years of his life. I mean, you didn't even know who he was when you met him. Well, I think that was refreshing for him because it, I didn't kind of, I didn't fall over. Most people would just meet him and just fall yeah. over because they all had a preconceived notion of who he was and what he was like. And that thinking that they, he was the kind of guy they could sit down and have a beer with when in fact he was a terribly, terribly private person and really just yearned for his alone time, aloneness and, yeah, it's interesting because he did speak about that, about this notion of being on. He 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 always had to be on and he was tired of being on. And the minute we'd go outside our house, I mean, the tour buses are going by, the trolley cars, it, 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 we'd go to the restaurant, people come up to the table for an autograph. You're just on all the time. And I think um, he he relished that. And, and in fact, I read, I, I read a book to him uh, in that those final months of his life, which was about the story of Franklin Roosevelt. Mm. Franklin Roosevelt talked about what it was like to be able to sit up in the private quarters of the white house and not be on. And, and Gene really, that really resonated with him. And, and, even in his the the choices he made for his death and his the after his death, he was so tired of being on and on a tour bus route that he said uh, that he didn't want his ashes anywhere because he didn't want he didn't want to be on a tour bus route anymore. He's tired of it. He just mm. for him he said it's dust to dust and I don't want my ashes anywhere. And I really get that. I, I mean, I guess if I had any feeling is I just wish that I had not allowed the world to, I think he was better at 
tuning all of that out and, and to stick with the cruise ship. It was hard for me in that fishbowl to kind of block it all out. Before I came into his life, the curtains were usually closed. And when I first moved in with him, I was like, why, are, why is everything closed here? And I, so I started opening the curtains in the house and, and I looked out and I said, this is gorgeous. Look at this view. I mean, our neighbor had this beautiful uh, Tuscan Italian tile roof and mm -hmm. In the back of our house was, you could see Bougainvillea and, and everything. And so Jean said, so we have Provence on one side and we have Tuscany on the other. And so it was this literal opening up of the windows, but this was just inside our little cocoon. Mm. I, so part of me thinks, oh, if only we just stayed in that little cocoon. If only we'd been able to stay in that little cocoon. Yeah. And by getting married, that cocoon just got busted open. And I mean, the world was just intent almost on taking us down. And we finally just looked at each other and said, are we going to let everybody break us apart? Or are we going to weather this? And we chose to weather it. And I'm glad we did. Most people didn't know my name, literally. And mm -hmm. I was kind of love or hello, hello, darling. And um, nobody knew I had recorded him every day. Nobody knew I had this story. Nobody wow. knew about our relationship. It just was always this mystery. Was she just this young woman that he mm. came in and manipulated him to marry her or something? You know, what was the deal? You know, and I'm, I always think of it when I read those accounts that somehow I manipulated Gene to held a gun to his head to marry me. It's kind of like, oh, not the Gene Kelly I know. <laughs> you do not, you do not all offer ultimatums to Gene Kelly or tell him what to do. I mean, that's what's so weird is that people describe him in a way, they'll describe him in, in such extolling all of his virtues and his strengths and how great he was and everything. But then they'll suddenly kind of think he somehow didn't make the choice about the person he wanted to be with. I mean, what, did you get dumb all of a sudden? Um, <laughs> so I always ask my guests how they define living in the moment. And I'm so curious to know your definition. You know, your life's work as a biographer has been dedicated to preserving moments and finding moments and all that. But I want to know from you, like, what's your definition of living in the moment? Boy, it's, a, you know, it's an interesting one because in many ways, I live everywhere. In I live in the past. I have the, uh, the past, but as Faulkner said, it's not past, it's present. And I live in the future because I'm constantly thinking of the next project, thinking, okay, I want to do this. I want this show. I want this ballet. I want this. I mean, it's really um, the present. I suppose the present is something I have tried I try to be very present for the close circle of friends that I have. I try to listen to what they need or what respond to their what they need. But it's interesting. It's more about somebody else than it is about me. Yeah, like good it, catch. Yeah. The present is okay for me so long as I'm not doing ugly business stuff. Uh, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. So that I, I, I want nothing to do with ugliness. Unfortunately, there is a degree of that in what I do in the life that I have um, that kind of comes with the territory. And I think it, you, you said something early on about uh, Gene, everyone ha claiming ownership. And that that's very true. It, it's a very strange thing to have this person who's your husband, but everybody else thinks that he belongs to them. So, so there's some stuff that comes with that, that I, I wish would go away. I try. I try. I'm not superhuman. I, I try as best as I can. Mm. Um, so many of us have a limiting belief that it's a destination living in the moment, that it looks like it looks one way. And what I, what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, you you want to move away from the moments that you have to endure. Makes sense. I mean, most of us do, but what I've been really deep diving into is the idea that there's a spectrum and, and it's not just one way and that emotions and feelings and yucky stuff is just as important, just as important to experience because without that, you wouldn't have the other, first of all. I mean, yeah, yeah, that, yep. You get both, mm -hmm. but you get both. You get that intensity of feeling of 
intense loss, but intense joy. And, and you get to experience everything. You get to feel it. You get to, and yeah, sometimes it is really frustrating and maddening. And um, so what I try to do now is just kind of minimize how much I give over to somebody else. Mm. Uh, there isn't going to be one big sunny day when I can, oh, great. Now I have it all behind me. I can move on. And that'll never be my life either. I just continue to love what I do. And I think that you know, just living for something that is in the future that may or may not happen, I, I try not to do that. I mean, I always said to my mom, if something ever happens to me, I said, I just want it. I just want people to know that I had an incredible ride and it was an incredible run. That That's what's so funny is that what comes with an extraordinary life, an extraordinary ability, responsibility to, uh, to promote, protect, perpetuate Gene's legacy. What's so interesting is that I have the most extraordinary life on one hand, and I probably have some, some interesting challenges on the other side that a lot of people don't have. Yep. But, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't change it because if you lessen one side, you're going to, you, you're going to lessen the other, you know, you're going to lessen the other side too. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. You said that you wish you could, you could ask Jean something and it, with all this retrospect, you, can you share one thing that you'd like to ask him that you can't ask him now? Well, um, just, just even in the, contemporary thing of um, going through his handwritten notes for the choreography for this ballet. Mm. I would just love to, I would love to have him next to me, standing next to me, because as I go through these pages, what, what it is is an um, extraordinary amalgamation of language, of, of dance. You know, it goes from a tour jeté to a bandy twist to a bent corkscrew, to mm-hmm. a pirouette, and it has a walk-walk. It has a John Alton move, which is from his mentor. <laughs> yeah. So it's all in words. All words. That's on cool. That. He had a shorthand that he picked up because he never studied dance notation. Like So glissade is gliss, and and then it may say gliss a la Kelly. Mm-hmm. So that, he knows, is the way he would do the glissade. Totally. It may have uh, a chocolat appears in it. So it's the famous American Paris Ballet chocolat. So the dancers will be doing it. But what I would love is for Jane to stand up and, and do, do the passages for me and, sh- and do, uh, you know, or talk, talk me through the, the movement, talk mm. me through a bandy twist, talk me through, I, I can look it up, but, I'd like to, I'd like to live it with him. Um, that that's kind of on my mind right now. There's so many other things. I mean, basically, anytime I pick up something, I go. I'd like to attend more performances with him. I wasn't able to do that because when we were together, there wasn't a lot of dance. I mean, it wasn't in 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 Los Angeles. With my knowledge now, which is still extremely incomplete, but I have a much greater knowledge of dance and all the different formats. And I've seen so much of it now since the Scottish Ballet is doing uh, Kenneth Macmillan's Meyerling in a few years. And I, Jean loved Kenneth Macmillan Mm. and Kenneth Macmillan loved Jean. I would love to go to that performance and then sit down with Jean and talk about Meyerling and talk about the movement and because I just don't have that with any, I can do it with some people, but I, I want to hear his take yep. on things based on his own things. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Tell me if this, if the, you I'm wondering if you can finish this. this phrase. So most people think Gene Kelly dot, 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 but the truth is dot, dot, dot. I think most, most people think Gene was a very gregarious, outgoing person. They could just sit down and have a beer with, uh, what he really was, was a terrifically cerebral, very private person who kind of yearned for that aloneness. And they do not understand the dimensions of his creative process. And they don't understand his understanding of his art form, of the use of the camera, of all of the aspects and how he studied it. When he studied classical ballet with Chicago dance masters in the 30s, 
there was no history of dance. You couldn't go and just read a history of dance at the mm. library. So he went to the University of Chicago Library and read all of the history of dance in French. It hadn't been translated yet. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he's devouring information to, because he always felt you needed to understand what came before in order to do what you do now and in order to go beyond what has happened before. But nobody thinks of Gene Kelly like that. I mean, I think they kind of thought he was sort of not a not a dumb dancer, but just a guy who could kind of get up and move. But I don't think they understand that he executed that, how he worked with the arrangers, how he worked with the composers, how he, how he studied how to take that camera and make it appear a, a one-dimensional format, a pure mm. dimensional, uh, his understanding of geometry. And also, I think this is the other thing, is his humility and his humanity and his integrity. Because you read these accounts, I don't even recognize the guy, but you read about his perfectionism, which is kind of seen in a derogatory light versus the fact that it's called precision it's called being a professional. Every dancer, every choreographer understands it. And I think, too, people, I read accounts of him being this very arrogant, kind of caustic kind of guy. And not, a, not at all. I never saw that. I never, ever, ever saw anything but humility and decency and a nod to the other guy, a nod to the underdog. He was was really decent. He was really ahead of his time, always way ahead in innovation and revolutionary stuff. Yeah. So, and yeah. a lot of people will come up and say, did he ever choreograph anything? So I, so they have no, or did he ever direct anything? So they, they don't, they, he's so big on that screen that they don't have any idea. So I try to recalibrate it and bring him back. <laughs> so that they understand that he's responsible for what you're seeing. Give him that credit. He deserves that. And the you know what's so cool about that is that when you met him, you didn't know anything about it. You that was what was great because yep. it was a blank slate. I didn't come and go, oh my God, he's the braille. Exactly. And, and and I I fell in love with his language, his words, and his intellect. I mean, that yep. was that's what got me. I mean, it was like, whoa this guy who speaks French, Italian, Yiddish, reads Latin, can quote every Yeats poem and every romantic poet and, and have that twinkle and that smile and be drop dead gorgeous. And just without any, it was unassuming. It was not, it was not, I mean, I'm sure you know how, how big a turnoff it is to be with somebody who's trying to show you how, how intelligent they are, how witty they are, how charming they are. It's just ugh, bork. <laughs> and he was, he just, he just was. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I think it's because it's real. I think that's what it is. It's because he's not doing anything. It's just him. You know, that it factor that everyone talks about with Gene, it's, it's Gene. Exactly. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yes, his dancing, my God is magnificent and inspired all of us, but that it thing is not his dancing. It's him. No matter what he did, that, that oh, would have no. shone through. Exactly. And that's what was so, the wit, the, the, the humor, the, I mean, he would just constantly break me up. I mean, I would be on the floor laughing <laughs> and it wasn't a stunt stand-up comedy kind of thing. It wasn't, no. wasn't that kind of humor, but it would be silly stuff and just, you know, and, it, and to this day, it still makes me laugh. And the notes he wrote to me make me laugh because they're so genius. People always say, well, you know, why haven't you gotten remarried? And it's kind of like, well, duh. Um, you don't see that combination. You don't see that ease of knowledge and that amount of knowledge and that breadth. And you don't see that charm, natural charm and charisma, as you're saying. You don't, don't see the tenderness. Uh, yeah. the intensity, the intensity of him. Um, so I think to find this whole package, I don't, I don't, I don't see many of those out there, frankly, I, and yeah. in history, I don't see many of them. Mm. Imagine if you guys had been the same age and met younger, what the two of you would have created together. It's kind of scary to think. Well, it wouldn't have worked. In yeah, opinion. maybe. Yeah. Because the thing is people always say to me, they'll say, Oh, don't you wish you had known Gene earlier and you mm. had more time together? It's like, no, because I got the man in repose. I got the final decade of the man. 
he didn't have to prove anything. He didn't have to, he wasn't, you know, he was not, he said that he, you know, he made the choice. It's the Yates choice. Do you make the choice of work over life? What do you choose? He chose work. And so you didn't, wouldn't have had what I had mm. when you would not have had. I had a very special time that was related to that time in his life. He mm. would never have sat down and done all of the, uh, he would never have been able to let down that guard, I don't think, at that point. Um, he wouldn't have had time. Yeah, exactly. He wouldn't have had the luxury of it. He wouldn't have had the luxury of that or the, the ability to reflect and to, mm. to really think about what he had contributed. He was too busy contributing. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. All right, before I let you out of here, I have to do what makes you. So I say, what makes you? And I say a word, and then you just say what comes to mind. So for instance, what makes you hungry? I mean, it depends what time of day it is. So there's no one word. It's like, what, I, I, don't, I don't get it. Um, blueberries. What makes you sad? Entitlement. What inspires you? Everything. What makes you frustrated? Entitlement. What makes you laugh? I really love to laugh at myself. When when my friends poke fun at me about something I do, it just cracks me up. I just I just start laughing so hard because they'll tease me relentlessly about something I do. So my own foibles, my foibles that makes me laugh, that my my own humanity. <laughs> but it's always about it's never at somebody else. It's always that somebody has triggered something and instead of me going no 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 i don't do that it's like yeah i do <laughs> you know? that's awesome it's connection too like it speaks to your value of connection too right it just immediately connected you to the person rather than pushing them away yeah and connected to how ridiculous i am yeah <laughs> totally embracing it <laughs> embracing the mess <laughs> all right what what makes you angry if we keep coming back to the the other one is entitlement i mean it's just really Mm-hmm. Fair. It's a, little, it's a little too prevalent right now. And mm-hmm. yeah. And finally, what makes you grateful? Gosh, so much. In many ways, I would say the the roller coaster to feel something intensely, as much as it might hurt, the gift of of that feeling of you know to be able to feel joy so intensely, to be able to feel beauty so intensely, to feel appreciation gratitude and then to engage. I mean, I, th- I always say, why else are we on the planet if we're not going to engage? We might as well just be wandering around. I mean, if we're not going to connect with people, then what's the point? I guess maybe gratitude that for whatever reason I have, <laughs> I end up the way that I am that appreciates that connection and that I have the whatever it is inside of me to make that happen or to try to make that happen. Yeah. How many words are we? I think I've covered 4 million per your one word request. No, no, that was beautiful. And, and I didn't actually say one word. I said to respond to the one word. So you're, you're fine. You're fine. What are the top three things that have happened so far today? The top three things that have happened today, but I would say an opportunity to talk to you. You know, I didn't know anything about you, honestly. I mean, I really didn't know. I didn't have time to look at anything. I really did. It just was been too preoccupied with other stuff. But I would say that the joy that comes when you meet somebody that is really, it, the interaction is, is uh, refreshing, is engaging, is thought-provoking. Uh, it's not banal. It's not just kind of going through the motions. So I, w- I would say this because up to this point, it was, it was the coffee. Lately, I've been wanting to really surround myself with things related to Gene, not only the archives, but tangible things, even the way he made coffee. So the coffee, so it's a kind of connecting and then also just enjoying it and relishing that, that. So, okay. So that's two. Um, the three was doing uh, sit-ups on my bed with my dogs. Uh, but those are three, coffee, dogs, and and the opportunity to chat with you. And I, I say that sincerely because I really, I mean, look what we have. I mean, we'll, we will be in touch 
inevitably forever. I mean, this we yeah. built something today. And with hope, maybe something even for your listeners who might feel like reaching out. I think that's priceless. I mean, that how do you so that that to me is the magic. So the magic already happened today. Whatever happens the rest of the day is kind of a bonus. No, I and I don't say that as any kind of you know make, be nice kind of thing. I really I feel that way, and I feel like to have a genuine connection and conversation that has been fun. I mean, I've enjoyed every minute of it and I look forward to another one. Yeah, as I have, really. It's just been such a pleasure. I've been speaking today with Patricia Ward-Kelly. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. And remember to live in the moment. Patricia, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been a real delight and I mean that. In music, stop time is that beautiful moment where the band is suspended in rhythmic unison, supporting the soloist to express their individuality. In the moment, I encourage you to take that time and create your own rhythm. Until next time, I'm Lisa Hopkins. Thanks for listening.